surrogacy is very bad for babies, should we not implement a lot of other policies like paying women to get sterilized who are addicted to drugs? That's also bad for babies. I think single sex education is really good. I think that actually keeping teenagers, unrelated teenagers, socially separate is a good thing. Being a virtual ethicist in relation to BDSM is I find men who want to beat up women really sus, basically. So where on the high street do you buy the sheets that have the hole embroidered in them, Louise? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a hijab as well. We could actually sell hijabs, that would be. <laughs> Welcome to the Aporia podcast. This week, Diana Fleischman speaks with Louise Perry. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms. If you like the show, you'll love the Aporia magazine. Find the link in the show notes, along with our Twitter and a link to the bonus questions we ask our guests. Hello, I'm Diana Fleischman, and today our guest is Louise Perry, journalist, activist, and author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Now, based on the title alone, I probably wouldn't have picked up the book, but it is the best treatment of current sexual politics from an evolutionary perspective that I've maybe ever read. I'd call Louise a Darwinian feminist or an evolutionary psychology feminist, which is as rare as it sounds. Uh, laying out my cards right now as someone who's generally pro-porn, pro-prostitution, in favor of reproductive technology and transhumanism more generally, it's a testament to Louise's writing, arguments, and rationality that I'm a big fan of both Case Against the Sexual Revolution and her excellent substack and podcast, Maiden Mother Matriarch even when I strongly disagree with her and her guests. Welcome, Louise. Hi, uh, what a wonderful introduction. <laughs> so you got into evolutionary psychology. I actually saw Randy Thornhill, who wrote A Natural History of Rape, which you cite extensively in your book. He was chuffed to bits that you <laughs> read that book in one sitting. Um, you went to SOAS, you, uh, which is the School of Oriental and African Studies, and you did women's studies. How did you how did you even pick up an evolutionary psychology book? Is that just contrarianism? How did you get into that? Um, <clears throat> I don't remember who recommended it to me. I mean, um, A Natural History of Rape was written when I was eight years old. So obviously I wasn't aware of any of the controversies surrounding it at the time. Um, I don't remember exactly how I came across it and why I decided to um, book it out of the Oxford University Library, probably the first student to have done so in a very long time. Um, but uh, it was when I was working, so, I mean, I wasn't a student at the time, at the time I was, I was um, an alumna and I was working in Rape Crisis Centre at the time and I was just feeling really kind of dissatisfied with the feminist account of sexual violence. And partly because of things that I'd personally noticed and partly because of things I was reading. I just thought, you know, the whole rape is about power, not sex. Um like particularly that, but just all sorts of things just didn't really stack up with the actual data on on rape. Um, and I mean, I don't know if everything in um, Thornhill and Palmer is is completely legit academically because I'm not qualified to to assess it. But I just found the entire approach just so refreshing, so refreshing. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was it was a there haven't been that many books like this, but it was one of those books that changed my life, even in, even though it was part of a cumulative process, it was an important turning point for me. I think one of the ideas that was extensively tested from Natural History of Rape was the loser male kind of hypothesis that men rape, you know, kind of when they have no other choice. And I can't remember if they rectified that 
in the book or if it came out later that actually it's men who are the most sexually successful who are also the most mm. sexually coercive. It's not a thing that men do when they have no other choice, like a scorpion fly, which has special pincers to hold down the female if it can't offer her a delicious globule of fly, which is what they usually use to seduce their mates with. <laughs> yeah, I've since read that. And that, of course, would make sense with the likes of Harvey Weinstein and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I guess men can have different motivations for for rape. But yeah, clearly sexually successive, successful men rape quite frequently. So you talk a lot in Case Against the Sexual Revolution and you're, and you're writing more generally about women being exceptionally vulnerable in a number of different ways that we would, you know, that we would predict from an evolutionary perspective. So that women are more coy and that women have uh, more maternal instincts, that women have greater sensitivities to a variety of, of issues, um, which is definitely in contrast to what society tells us about men and women these days. You know, you talk, I was just listening again to your audiobook. Um, you talk about demisexuals, which I think is the, the, the workaround people have made for saying, I don't want to have casual sex. I'm a woman, but it's not because I'm a woman. It's because I have this unusual sexual orientation. Yeah. Demisexuals is, is, I mean, it's great because you get to have it both ways. You get to basically just express your like normal female sexuality, which is what you want to do anyway. And you also get to have a special <laughs> label, a special minority status. Have you thing. heard of uh, fray sexuals, which I think is a good de definition of male sexuality? And no, what, how did they define it? Uh, I listened to Dan Savage. Fray sexuals are people who like to have sex with someone for a month or two and then grow tired of them. <laughs> 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 uh, I yeah, I remember someone at uni who, called, who, who, who was an early adopter of the term aromantic. Uh -huh. And this was early enough that we all said, no, that's just traditionally called being a dick. <laughs> well, the, the, yeah. the, I think the new term for men who are... And I don't know if it's done anything to stigmatize promiscuous men, but the fuckboy label I think mm. is new. I don't really know if it, if it necessarily works. So one thing that I think is a little bit of a, a gap is you're talking about women being more coy, but you also seem to think that women are more traumatized or harmed emotionally by things like casual sex, things like doing pornography, things like being um, shamed publicly. And, you know, you also talk about women being uh, more agreeable. And this is one thing that I think is a, is a gap in evolutionary thinking on your part is that, uh, you know, we lived under horrible circumstances. Women were kidnapped and raped. They had their babies killed in front of them and they kind of had to soldier on. You know, if anything, our species has been, uh, I think, uniquely selected for uh, resilience. And people like, you know, John Haidt have talked about what has made this particular generation uh, more vulnerable and more susceptible to, you know, cultural influence than others. So my question to you is, you know, why necessarily are women this sensitive to these uh, harms? And, you know, how, do you think that there's a, a possible harm in telling women that they're uniquely harmed by these harms? I mean, I think what we see going on generally with hookup culture is that um, women are soldiering on, on the whole, and they're generally actually kind of putting up with it and going along with it. It's just against their instinctive preferences, you know. So I think that those two things are reconcilable. Um, and a lot of women don't seem, well, 
a lot of women don't seem to feel sufficiently confident in gatekeeping sex more carefully um, because the culture um, discourages them from doing so. Um, I mean, maybe it's the culture is a, is, a, is a bit of a fudge. The um, incentive structures within the sexual marketplace discourage them from doing so because it does mean potentially foregoing mating opportunities. Um, so, you know, I think women are... I think traumatized is probably too strong. I would say that the sex trade is traumatizing for a lot of women. Um, and women will often describe having, for instance, dissociative experiences, which long-term, which do seem to be indicative of trauma. I mean, trauma is obviously on a spectrum and it's horribly overused as a term because it's become um, sort of politically popular. Um, but I would say that that there is evidence that women prostitution like really do experience something like that and maybe they always did you know the fact that women survive to reproduce doesn't necessarily indicate that they weren't completely miserable yeah it's, it's a bit of a question right? in terms of uh prostitutes um it seems like women who are uniquely emotionally vulnerable are also women who were most likely to join the sex trade right it doesn't you know i, I heard your conversation yeah. with me adoring which talked a lot about this this issue and about how happy hookers are the women who are most likely to uh, be speaking to camera and being endorsing prostitution as a whole. Um, and they are somewhat of a rarity. Uh, but certainly you have to agree that some percentage of women do hook up culture, do porn and do prostitution, uh, you know, without ill effect. And wouldn't it be useful to be able to predict that in some way so that women could make a decision about whether or not it was likely to have ill effects for them. Yeah, I can see that some women do do seem to be able to do it without ill effect. Um, I mean, the problem with um, prostitution in particular, maybe less so porn, because porn can um, theoretically, you know, you can reproduce a video infinite numbers of times and therefore have sort of infinite supply of, of material, whereas prostitution requires continuous supply of women. And there aren't that many women who who are happy doing it without ill effect. And so you end up women who are either emotionally vulnerable or who are directly forced um, ending up in prostitution. I don't think there's any way of having it be legalized um, and or socially um, acceptable without that happening. Um, and I think that the cost to those women of ending up, the cost of the cost to the women who find it traumatic of ending up in the sex trade are much more important to me, I think, than are, sort of the dissatisfaction of women who have, have to make a living in some other way um so if we're I like I recognize that trade-off exists um but I think on balance the argument in favor of the Nordic model is a stronger one just thinking about that um this this question about evolution and, and prostitution I've read and I don't know I'm interested in knowing what you think um that prostitution basically doesn't really exist pre-agriculture mm -hmm. Um, because you're not going to have this, not, you're not really going to have enough men. I mean, you'll have women who are maybe sex slaves to like one man, yep. <laughs> but it like prostitution kind of depends on cities, doesn't it? Like having enough people. Yep. So it's possible also that it's like sufficiently recent that our female ancestors didn't evolve to soldier on with it. Yeah, I think that you're you're right that women, you know, in in war might have been gang raped uh, by multiple men. Um, there are many people who have uh, 
posited that that's one reason why multi-male on one woman pornography is is arousing to many people is because it emulates that kind of uh, context. It, you know, it could just be a super stimuli, seeing a lot of heart penises or seeing a lot of ejaculate, that kind of thing. Um, but it is unlikely that a woman would have been, you know, pre-agriculture having sex with multiple men because somebody would have claimed her uh, or, you know, at some point and, and, uh, and, and being a sex slave, I think would have been uh, potentially more common. Um, you know, getting back to this idea of trauma, one of my main problems with trauma is that it almost has this like, this like magical quality you know, you add trauma to any context and it's like this, this wild card. So when you talk to Mia Doring, who is a, you call her a sex trade survivor, and she's written a book about uh, having been a prostitute. She talks about how some women who have been in the sex trade afterwards endorse the sex trade because of trauma. So there's this idea that trauma can make you do weird things and it makes you kind of an unpredictable agent. Yeah, and you'd argue that that that, that, that potentially is sort of um, reinforcing negative narratives of people's lives. That I'm I'm sure that that is sometimes the case. I mean, the flip side, though, I suppose, is also that um, uh, Mia and others compare sometimes being in prostitution to being in an abusive relationship, mm. except that you're obviously not in relationship with one man, but that it's the same sort of. Um, push-pull emotional cycle where you go back whatever um and she she's interesting I think because she talks quite candidly about the um some of the psychological benefits to her actually of prostitution in the sense that it made her feel desirable it made her feel high value you know um so even if you're not doing it because you desperately need the money you can still end up in that kind of difficult emotional cycle where you're harmed and um and yeah, so if we compare it to an abusive relationship, the thing that tends to keep women in abusive relationships is that they don't see them as such and they are very good at making excuses for their abusers. And this, you know, whether or not this is a um, is something I write about briefly in my book, actually, that um, women seem to be very good, actually, at falling in love with men who are abusive towards them yeah. and, and that's probably because of our evolutionary history and the fact that women who did that um uh survived to reproduce more than women who didn't um it may also be to do with women's agreeability um and and a kind of remarkable capacity i think much more in young women just my just my anecdotal impression um to um make excuses for people who treat them badly and so when a woman is stuck in that kind of rut where actually she really just needs to leave this violent guy, offering her an alternative narrative, even if it's one that frames her as a traumatised victim, can be a preferable narrative mm -hmm. to the one where actually, you know, he he's a great guy, whatever. So I, I agree that applying any kind of simplistic narrative to your life has perils yeah. but I would say that that one in many circumstances may be a preferable one yes there's there's some interesting stuff on this um 
several years ago, this colleague of mine, uh, Jeff Snyder, did some work looking at women's preferences for very formidable masculine macho men as a function of the violence or the crime right in their postcode. And so women have this preference for, for such men who also tend to be more likely to domestically abuse them at home uh, when mm. they are in these contexts. So attaching yourself to a man who beats you up on occasion is a rational choice if you live in a dangerous environment because being occasionally beat up by one man who protects you as property from other men is preferable to being sort of cast to the wolves. And you talk about Stockholm syndrome, I think, very compellingly um, in your book because it, it also yeah, makes sense that somebody would, would attach themselves, especially if you are engaged in prostitution, the, the cues that you're getting about the violence of other men and the way your pimp can protect you or nurture you after you're exhausted and after you've had all of these um, harrowing, aggressive, uh, aggressive encounters – uh, is is potentially a, a, a way to attach. Um, I think they call that trauma bonding or hysterical bonding in the literature, uh, but I think it's it's quite a, a straightforward evolutionary uh, phenomena, yeah. Yeah, but it's kind of maladaptive. Well, I mean, if you're if you're if you're completely stuck in prostitution, you can't get out. It might be adaptive. Yeah. But if actually you could get if you could exit, but you're but you're not doing so because of your trauma bonding to your pimp or whatever yeah um then i think it, i think we should consider that to be maladaptive yeah there there are definitely more options now and and people don't necessarily know uh yeah you see this this happen all the time there's also this this idea of like learned helplessness right if you electrocute the floor of a cage several times a dog will stop trying to, to jump away, even if you later give them the option of jumping away and this has been quite a difficult thing to explain. Um, so you know, there's this concept in psychology. I don't know if you've thought very much about it. It's called iatrogenic. So iatrogenic is, um, it's applied to both therapeutic contexts now, but also things like TikTok. So you go to a therapist, the therapist says, uh, your father was in a satanic cult and he raped you all the time. And you had all these, uh, this is what happened with the satanic panic, uh, back in the eighties is that therapists, basically implanted these traumatic uh, memories in, in their patients. And then you see this a bit with, with TikTok culture now. There are many young people who think that they have dissociative identity disorder or uh, Tourette's or um, other kinds of, of mental illnesses because these ideas of diagnoses have been seeded. And, you know, I'm just guessing this is a way to, to be interesting. And you seem to be biased in favor of thinking that people are harmed and are traumatized rather than that they are fine and they have chosen uh, to express trauma as a way to gain, you know, social cachet. So you talk about, for example, you know, you're, you're a young porn starlet you start doing porn, then you have to do more and more, uh, you know, intense scenes and you have to do more, um, you know, more, more men and more, uh, extreme kinds of pornography in order to stay employable and, uh, relevant in that kind of porn genre. But at the same time, you know, when people get out of porn and they say, you know, I had this horrible time and I was, I was severely abused. There's also 
I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but there's also reasons for people to say such things. And that's also a way for people to um, make a living and remain relevant, right? Not necessarily make a living. I suppose it is. it can be cope if you've actually aged out of the industry. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I, I, I accept that. I mean, I, so I accept the fact that to some extent, my whole view on, on sexuality is going to be colored by the fact that I am just like highly restricted in sociosexuality. Okay. Like I'm just, I, I, I do, I do recognize that. So I, I find it hard to directly empathize with women who have unrestricted sociosexuality and actually enjoy casual sex, et cetera. Um, which probably does bias me in favor of thinking that you know porn stars who talk about being traumatized are sincere because I would be yeah um and clearly you know I am probably closer to the norm for women than is say Ayla and I think Ayla would acknowledge that absolutely Ayla is is, and and as as am I you know there was many times that I read in your book um such and such kind of woman is is very unusual. If you like this, you're weird. And I'm and I thought I'm weird. And you know, I was more. I read your book probably at the time I'd be most receptive to it. I listened to your book while I was caring for a newborn. You know, <laughs> so so I was probably at the you know, and then while I was pregnant again, while I was really most receptive um, to your ideas. So that's super interesting. So you know, your views are really shaped by you're a highly agreeable woman. You're a low sociosexuality woman. And this is what I've experienced with, with, you know, meeting feminists. I've met a lot of feminists that have a quite masculine personalities. And it makes sense to me that they think that there are very few sex differences because they themselves show, you know, show very few sex differences with men. Yeah, I'm sure this is an enormous factor in everyone's perspective on this that everyone has um, is, is, is somewhere along this kind of, it's not even masculine to feminine spectrum. It's, it's like, you know, it's two humps, right? Yeah. Um, Yes, I mean, I am. I, I recognize the fact that I basically have a feminine personality, um, and feminine sexuality, with the odd exception that I, you know, that there's this um, strong tendency in women to favor protecting feelings over speaking truthfully and free speech. I don't feel like that. I'm simultaneously contrarian, actually, and very like preoccupied with the truth and I find lying very irritating and I um I really don't like playing along with those kind of feminine games where everyone lies to be nice those have always annoyed me which has sometimes got me in trouble with with friends I'm just not very good at doing that um but in every other way I'm I'm typically feminine which I guess puts me therefore in the unusual position of being simultaneously being able to directly empathize with women who are feminine but also not feminine enough to like go along with the dominant narrative. Uh, yeah, I, this is something I like about you when I've, when I've seen you do, I mean, when you did the debate with Ayla, honestly, I didn't think it was very debatey. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, you can see other people's perspectives. Um, one thing that I've noticed about you is that you rarely, and, and maybe this is a, a strategic a strategy on your part, but you rarely say, um, you know, other than in the surrogacy conversation, which we, we may get to, you rarely say, this is the policy proposal that I would endorse. I think that we should make, you know, porn illegal. I think that we should make surrogacy illegal. I think that we should, uh, 
you know, introduce in sexual education for young people the evolutionary psychology notion that men and women have very different sexual strategies and very different ideal uh, modes of of intimacy. Do you actually have, you know, like, for example, with pornography, something that you would implement if you were the queen of the universe? Um, yeah, I think I probably would just ban it. Yeah. Um, I think it's a genuinely difficult question, which is why I'm slightly hesitant about generally saying that, because um, I think that the main downside, honestly, of just banning porn, aside from the difficulty of doing it, although we ban child porn without worrying too much about the fact that it's difficult to enforce and that there's loads of people break the law all the time, um, is that um, it would be so widely broken um, that it potentially undermines the legitimacy of the law in general. But then I think we kind of crossed that Rubicon with COVID, honestly, where we banned like hugging your grandma <laughs> and walking in the park. Yeah. And everyone did it. And it didn't seem to sort of, I mean, I, I had all sorts of objections to lockdown, but like it didn't seem to sort of bring the whole um, criminal justice house of cards falling down. So um, I just don't think that it's really possible to do what most people want to do, which is basically to ban the bad stuff and permit the vanilla stuff. I don't think in practice that's possible. Mm. And I also think that even the vanilla stuff has a deleterious effect on users because of the super stimulus effect, because it's very addictive, you know, all this stuff. I think that basically it's a hyper novel product, which we don't need. And humanity has, has coped just fine without access to online porn up until about five minutes ago. What do you think of the um, argument that online porn or free access to porn reduces the rates of sexual assault? I think that's the strongest argument in favor of not criminalizing it. Mm -hmm. And it's, I guess, an empirical question. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm also, I'm not a utilitarian, so I'm not necessarily going to be happy with the idea of having, you know, a minority of women, like the, if we apply the same argument to prostitution, which people obviously do, mm -hmm. I, I'm not happy with the idea of having a minority of women who are basically sacrificial lambs because I'm a virtue ethicist and I just think that's wrong, <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't necessarily be entirely persuaded by that. If, however, it were empirically definitely true, I would definitely say that that's the strongest argument in favor of retaining online porn, but I'm not convinced that it is from the data that I've seen so far. Yeah. So in thinking about these, you know, I was trying to sort of do back of, you know, napkin calculations about various things like what percentage of women are low in agreeableness high in openness, high in sociosexuality, you know, what percentage of women actually enjoy things like hookup culture. And, you know, I was thinking about myself because I, I made a joke on Twitter that this was the slut versus prude uh, showdown. <laughs> um, even I never actually engaged in full hookup culture. I wouldn't have enjoyed it, right? Um, because I'm disagreeable when I would go out with people that I liked and somebody I was attracted to, I would say, I just don't see any point in having sex one time. The first time people have sex, it can be nice, but it's not usually worth it. So I'm not actually interested in sleeping with you unless we have like a recurring thing or we're going to, we're going to go out once a week. We're going to have dinner. We're going to have sex and whatever. So I would actually make these very overt, almost contractual verbal agreements with, with people that I was seeing. Um, and in my experience, men are very, happy to do that if you are, you know, if you are explicit, but you say, you know, women should wait multiple months, uh, or I, I don't know how long, um, before they have sex. Uh, this is a very compound question, but you know, what percentage of women do you think 
uh, could actually engage in something like hookup culture happily? I don't know. I think it's probably a small number. Yeah. I mean, the women that I'm talking to specifically when I say things like wait several months are the agreeable women. Okay. Who are going along with hookup culture because they're being nice. Yeah. And they're being conformist. Um, and I think those are the women who could most benefit from just having a little bit of encouragement to basically gatekeep more carefully. Um I mean, the yeah, I, I don't think I need to be kind of backing up, you know, the disagreeable slutty women because I think they're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what proportion, though, of women? See, I suspect, though, that there are probably quite a lot of women who will tell you that they have unrestricted sociosexuality mm-hmm. and that they really enjoy casual sex, but they're often doing it actually because they... um they are reliant on the feeling of being desired even in a short-term way Mm -hmm. and actually it probably like they are slightly misunderstanding their own sexual market value yeah david bus talks a little bit about this um a kind of like a foot in the door technique that women use where they have casual sex they present themselves in a certain way you know, everybody does this in the early stages of dating and then they're hoping to get into a long-term relationship, but they're missing the pivot where you actually have to, at some point after having sex several times say, okay, where is this going? What's going on? Kind of a thing, Um, which men would necessarily call, you know, a bait and switch and women would necessarily call, this is the pivot that I'm making uh, from what I was compromising about to what I actually really want. So my suspicion is that some of the women, an unknown proportion of the women who say that they really like casual sex Mm. and they actually do have quite masculine sexuality, are women who keep attempting this foot in the door technique and it keeps failing. And it's more palatable to them to interpret this as I have masculine sexuality than actually I would like to have a committed relationship and I can't get one. So obviously those women are not going to openly admit to that. (laughs) but my suspicion is that some of my critics are in that category and then some also are sort of sincere but what proportions those are I don't know so you often say consent is not enough right women can't uh you know they might be consenting to having casual sex but honestly it's not enough because they're often getting hurt or they're often misrepresenting themselves or they're often for whatever cultural or social reasons uh not competent to act in their own interests because their own interests are hidden to them, right? They don't understand necessarily that uh, sex is going to be um, traumatic to them. One concept that I really liked is your concept of mutualism rather than consent. Tell me, I I don't know if you, if you flesh that out anywhere uh, in your writing. So that was actually me adoring who raised that as a preferable term Uh in our interview to consent. Um, And I thought that that was a good way of framing it because it's not possible, I think, to describe. um, You can describe an encounter as consensual when actually there's uh, like at least a potential for harm to one or other party. Um, I don't think you can really describe an encounter as mutual and still have sort of room for that degree of... um, um well immorality i mean this is the this is basically my problem with consent that it describes 
it describes the legal status of an encounter. It doesn't describe the moral status of an encounter. And there's a lot of space between those two things. Um, and I don't mean moral in the, like, necessarily in an old-fashioned religious sense. I mean it in the sense of, um, is harm being done normally to the woman mm -hmm. in this encounter? Not always to the woman, but normally, just because of the nature of sexual asymmetry. So one of the comments that I read on uh, my interview with you was somebody balked at the fact that I said, if somebody does porn or somebody is slutty or promiscuous or whatever, that we should not um, shame them and that they should still have some chance of getting a job or getting in a long-term relationship or whatever. And somebody said, you know, why shouldn't you shame them? So should we bring back slut shaming in order to help women protect themselves better? Louise. <laughs> <laughs> the feminist case for slut shaming. Um, <laughs> it's already taken. <laughs> <laughs> um i uh i don't know it's something that i wrestle with the, the thing that is the thing about talking about sexual cultures and cultures in general which is really difficult and a lot of people struggle to wrap their heads around is sometimes things can be good for individuals but bad at scale mm -hmm. right yeah so i know sort of i am able personally to sort of wrap my head around the idea that um you know, I don't personally slut shame. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I think, but I also recognize the fact that if we are going to have any kind of, if we're going to disincentivize the kind of behavior that hurts individual women and also causes and also contributes to a culture that is bad for other women, right? So if you have a culture of casual sex is fine for the, for the disagreeable slutty women who enjoy it. Mm -hmm but it's not good for the agreeable prudish women who don't who are like and, the, and there are more agreeable prudish. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if you're going to, it's very hard to design a culture which serves the interests of the disagreeable slutty women while also protecting the interests of the, of the agreeable prudish women. How do you do that? Because what you're dealing with is basically sort of what are men, what are men willing to put up with? Like how many dates are, are men willing to wait before having sex? What's considered normal? Um, because the agreeable prudish women are going to be sort of strongly bound by what's considered normal. So it may be that actually the only way of sustaining a sexual culture where people wait for a period that is more acceptable to the majority of women mm -hmm. is by shaming the women who don't want to wait. I hope that that's not true, but I'm also, I do recognize that that's the case, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, burning women as witches or any of this. Yeah. But I, I think it's not possible for everyone to always have their choices affirmed all the time. I talked to a controversial law professor on this platform, um, Amy Wax, who, uh, who really endorsed slut shaming. And she said, you know, when she was in <laughs> high school, uh, nobody had sex and it didn't do anybody any harm. And if they did have sex, they were incredibly quiet about it. And yeah, I mean, she, she fully endorsed uh, a slut shaming and um, it, it does seem that, you know, being a slut, if, if people are trying to hold the line is being a traitor to your sex in, in a fundamental way. 
yeah I, I've read her on this and I think she's she's <laughs> she's a very compelling writer yeah um, I mean one of the things that I've read her um writing on um which is very interesting because she was sort of there at the time is um the fact that it used to be you go on a date and the default was no like yeah. the expectation was that you would not be having sex and now the expectation is that you probably will be and so all of a sudden these agreeable prudish women are you most women are having to like be on the defensive in that negotiation process and they're actually not really equipped to do that emotionally because they're worried about not being nice they're worried about being low status all mm. of this and so you have loads of women having sex just to be nice um and to be conformist and then yeah. feeling miserable about it later not necessarily feeling traumatized like I, I i acknowledge that trauma is probably overstating it um but feeling a bit wretched feeling a bit wretched i think it's a good, a good way to put it um yeah. One one question I got was, uh, if if waiting is good, why don't you encourage young women to masturbate more? <laughs> or indeed tactical lesbianism. Um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not opposed to either of those strategies. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you would... so that's a point where I probably differ from the Sunday school teacher. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does feminist sex look like, Louise? Um, so, okay. So one point where I probably disagree with the, um, the sort of radical feminist view of it is I actually think that probably typical female sexuality is a bit submissive. Mm -hmm. I don't think as I lay out in the book that choking is a good trend. I think it's a trend that is elaborating on that general desire for submissiveness and, and it's partly provoked by porn. I think, I think porn is again, just sort of, um, the porn that becomes successful is the porn that's good at pushing people's buttons. And obviously those buttons do have sort of innate origins. Um, I think I wonder if part of the reason why choking has become so popular is also because we live in a culture which has much less gender polarity. And I think to some extent people are trying to compensate for that that's by sort of, yeah, like inserting more polarity into the bedroom. You mean more dimorphism, um, like the man seems bigger and stronger if he's choking you. I mean, this is why I think yeah, people like, like bondage. Women on yeah. average like bondage where the men – and bondage is much safer than – I listened to um, Dan Savage who has this dominatrix on called Mistress Matisse who says something very shocking all the time and I don't know what the data is on it. She says that um, choking is more dangerous than literally <laughs> – cock and ball torture where you put needles in somebody's scrotum <laughs> she says that's is, probably true is worse than yeah that. yeah Which, well because you're messing with your brain yeah. whereas if you're messing with your balls it just <laughs> the stakes are lower heal very um i really have i have no yeah. idea how, what the rate of infection is how many men die from no, putting needles I, in there. no i can't <laughs> claim personal i mean yeah but like non-zero i the so interestingly i i am um, i uh have worked on this campaign group we can't consent to this which is about this issue of of men claiming in court that their um partners died as a consequence of rough sex whereas we strongly suspect that actually they died as a consequence of domestic violence um and uh interestingly about as many men die annually from auto erotic asphyxiation on their own um as women are killed and their killers claim this defense so that the two phenomena are roughly of the same s scale um 
And it is telling that women aren't doing that. Women don't do autoerotic asphyxiation on themselves. Or if they do, they'd never die from it because we've never found an example of a woman dying from this. Um, which suggests that what women are actually interested in is the power play. Um, and yeah, I mean, my, I mean, also conveniently, it's potentially a good way of making choking seem low status. Like you're asking your boyfriend to choke you because he's a skinny soy boy. <laughs> and you're trying to like insert a sense of masculinity into the occasion. Um, I do think that that might be part of what's going on. Um, but going back to this thing about feminist sex, I think I don't, I'm not completely uncomfortable. I like, I accept I accept the fact that female sexuality probably does in, involve a degree of submissiveness. I think absolute egalitarianism mm -hmm. in the bedroom is probably not what people want. But I also think that there should be limits placed on that. And I think, for instance, a stigma on choking is one of them. Because, I mean, it is potentially dangerous. It is potentially dangerous in the sense of potentially inducing brain injury. Mm -hmm. Like if you pass out from choking, you've, you've suffered at least a minor brain injury. It's not a good idea to do this stuff. Um, I don't think that actually it's easy to kill someone from choking accidentally because you actually need to be um, putting quite firm pressure on their neck for sort of three minutes minimum. And, you know, people are not dying accidentally during Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for instance. Like, it, it seems to actually be quite hard to kill people yeah. accidentally doing this. I think what's going on is actually these women are being killed, killed deliberately and their killers are then able to rely okay. on greater cultural um, acceptance of BDSM to spin this narrative that it was all just a sex game gone wrong, which is why I think the defence shouldn't be available in law. But that's like one example of why when you normalise this kind of stuff, it has quite severe downstream consequences. Um, another of which more common is that women are getting choked without being asked in advance because it's become so normal and they find it really frightening like if you suddenly get choked by a tinder date that you basically don't know from adam that's really scary because you might think he's murdering you yeah right so it's not unreasonable for women to um object strongly to that kind of experience which is um which is a consequence of the fact that this is now being inserted into the sexual script as just a normal thing to do in bed so I think that we should be, I think we can say simultaneously that women wanting in general to be a little bit submissive is okay, but that things like normalizing quite extreme violence like choking is not okay. Yeah. So, you know, your explanation that your virtue ethicist has actually cleared up quite a lot because, you know, you think that unwanted sex is worse than sexual frustration. You think normalizing even mild BDSM, it'd be better if BDSM wasn't normalized at all, even if it brings some people a lot of pleasure because people trying it on mass is on average, well, that's another utilitarian. I can't get away from utilitarianism because I'm a utilitarian. Well, on, this is on something average, we, it's bad, yeah. We talked about when you came on my podcast about um, polyamory yeah. and the fact that some people seem to be able to do polyamory without it causing them like disasters in their personal life. Yeah. Like generally, if you are very intelligent, have very good impulse control, very conscientious, very good communication skills, all of these things, you can probably negotiate something as thorny as polyamory or indeed BDSM without coming to harm. Uh, I, my um, uh, my friend, uh, writer Mary Harrington, she says that you should only do BDSM if you don't need a safe word. Like you know the other person so well, you trust them so much that you actually don't need a safe word because you can you can rely on them to intuit how you're feeling. That well. I like Mary Harrington. I think that her um, idea that you shouldn't take birth control so it's easier to say no to casual sex is bonkers, <laughs> totally bonkers. Um, and oftentimes, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, and now I'm gossiping, she was a lesbian at some point, right? 
Yeah. 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 I get a strong, I mean, when I hear her talk about <laughs> heterosexual sex, that's the strong, that's a strong impression that I get. Um, uh, a good BDSM top is, uh, is occasionally pushing uh, your boundaries somewhat, right? There's like a little bit of a, of a normal distribution and they should kind of hit the tail every once in a while. And um, literally as <laughs> rhetorically and it was symbolically and uh and so i think uh yeah the safe word thing it, it the, the the fact that you don't need a safe word is not a i don't i don't think that's the thing that makes sense but uh moving moving swiftly on my other view um in uh, being a virtual yeah. ethicist in relation to bdsm is i find men who want to beat up women really sus basically i think I, and i think that particularly if you're seeking out I mean, particularly when it comes to casual relationships, right, where you basically are already taking a risk as a woman in, with being alone with this man because you're smaller than him. Like, if he decides to attack you, you, you there's nothing you can do. Um, if you are l literally seeking out, and I've heard from women who've been basically, I, I don't know, deeply misled by the culture, will go on, like, fetish sites or whatever and we'll meet up alone with men who have expressly said I get off on choking women I get off on beating women mm -hmm. and then are astonished when these men get off on choking and beating women without consent right so I think that I guess in theory there are some men who are actually extremely safe loving respectful make fabulous partners and can turn on that kind of domination aggressive desire mm -hmm. and turn it off reliably but i'm not convinced that they can all that even even i i think that the majority can't be relied upon to turn it off reliably i think what what bdsm people call impact play which is hitting people with various things floggers and things like that um you know i don't know what percentage of bdsm practice that is maybe half maybe 75 percent um, but it's not the whole thing. And if you think that evolutionary feminine sexuality is somewhat submissive, then the yang to that is that masculine evolved sexuality is somewhat dominant. And obviously there are ways to be dominant without any impact and BDSM is a super stimulus of those kinds of dynamics, right? Which is a woman being submissive to somebody who she feels that she can, you know, there's this kind of daddy dom thing, right? Somebody you feel like you can trust. Um, that gets back to what Mary Harrington said, but somebody who also um, can protect you from, from other people, somebody who plays on that kind of uh, dimorphism. And so, yes, I get the impression from your book and from your writing that you think uh, men who engage in any BDSM are incredibly, as you say, like the kids, sus. <laughs> but um, I think the men who get off on beating up women is, you know, what I would say is a minority of, of such men. I mean, it's just this uh, real challenge that women have, right? That on the, the by nature of being vulnerable, physically and also through through childbearing yeah. that you want a guy who'll protect you but who won't hurt you and that's just a very difficult sort of tightrope to walk um and if we assume that men's sexual aggression is on, on some kind of bell curve ish and women don't really know what, where any given man they meet is situated on it um striking that 
getting just the right spot is hard. And the other thing, of course, is that men can be like encouraged or discouraged in expressing sexual aggression, depending on the context that they're in. And I think that, you know, so I, the type of BDSM that which I think is the most um, is the safest and most sensible is the sort of highly ritualized community mm-hmm. stuff that goes on where people take it very seriously. And, um, you know, I, I completely acknowledge that that exists. The problem with something like choking is it isn't now being practiced by sort of reputable practitioners, yeah. right? It's been practiced by like everyone because they saw it on Pornhub. And all of a sudden you've got men who are situated somewhere along that sexual aggressive sexual aggression bell curve who are being shoved by culture and by pornographic stimuli in a more aggressive direction. And you've got loads of women basically going home with men they don't know. Yeah. It just it just seems like a recipe for disaster to me. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, especially a man who's disconnected from a kind of community. Uh, honestly, the BDSM community has become incredibly kind of progressive and um, more consenty than I think that you could even imagine. <laughs> and annoying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, you, as I said, you know, you don't really, really talk about uh, changes in the law, uh, you know, in terms of paternalism. So you're, are you conservative? Yeah, I, I'm tactical about saying that because the thing that I um, seem to be quite good at, not like before writing this book, um, even uh, is um, making conservative arguments to progressive audiences and then finding them quite persuasive. And so if I open with saying I'm a conservative, I've normally completely blown that. Um, <laughs> so I don't sort of, I don't, um, I don't tend to boast about that label, but like, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I take Chesterton's fence extremely seriously. Yeah. It's very important to my politics. And that's something that I, I've, I've come recently to uh, as well. Is, is a more conservative view of existing institutions, things like things like marriage. So what are your, you know, so I see myself as more conservative than I used to be, but I'm, I'm fairly libertarian um, and something has to be causing really enormous harm in order for me to, to think about restricting it in some way. Um, but you seem to have much lower limits for exercising control over people's autonomy. I might call your view maternalism instead of paternalism because you are exercising control in the service of, of, of women's interests. So this is kind of why I was thinking about like, what are the numbers, right? Um, what are the numbers of women who get into porn, uh, percentage of women who get into porn where it screws up their whole lives? And I know you can't actually restrict people doing hookup culture. The best that you can do is potentially educate women about how their sex differences in what they what kind of sex they find satisfying is going to um, necessarily uh, change their minds. Um, you know your conversation with uh, Jennifer Lal, that's her name, right? Uh, drove me insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it made me really angry. And um, you know she she seems to have this data that she talks about. Um, anyway. I don't know what percentage of women she's talking about who act as surrogates have these problems. She was talking about a lot of anecdotes. But in your view, if you had to put a number on it or a or a heuristic on it, what proportion of people would have to be harmed in order for you to think, okay, it's time to step in and uh, make something illegal or take away somebody's right to do something? 
I mean, I'd say, first of all, that there's a difference between making something illegal and stigmatizing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we can probably use the latter quite freely, whereas I'm, 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 I'm more cautious about the former. Um, um, I mean, it's hard to be utilitarian about it because I'm not a utilitarian. I mean, it depends on, in general, I don't take, I'm not that interested, to be honest, in people who want to maximize their pleasure if it's causing harm to someone else. Mm -hmm. So like, I kind of think with, for instance, someone who really, really gets off on choking, I think just, just enjoy sex another way then. Like it's not worth it for other people to be harmed. So in general, like, it's not quite that any harm. I'm, no, I'm tempted to say that if someone is already enjoying something, but they can enjoy something more by harming someone else. Yeah then that's a no from me. This is this is an argument that people made during COVID and an argument that I still see, you know, disability rights activists making, which is why shouldn't we all socially distance and why shouldn't we all mask up for the rest of history? No, because um, social distancing is a complete. Okay. No, because that, like, yeah, I, I'm not convinced by that because I think that causes enormous harm. Okay. I mean, the masking, I don't know. I, I personally hate masks. Uh, like, I, as far as I can tell, the evidence on masking doing anything it's, in either direction. Uh, is and a population weak. level is very mixed. So because you yeah. are very low on socioactuality, you don't enjoy casual sex, um, maybe you can't appreciate the harm of saying these things. Are That's optimistic. probably true. Yeah. That's probably true. When I um, spoke to Andrew Sullivan on his podcast, uh -huh. It was a really, it was quite a funny conversation because he, um, he really likes casual sex. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so from his perspective, he was like appalled at the idea. And, and he was also one of those rare people actually, because most straight men who read the book, they, or interview me, they don't, they're a bit reticent about saying, but what about men's pleasure? Right. Um, what's so wrong with men, you yeah. know, enjoying all of these, all of these things. Whereas Andrew being gay isn't as reticent about saying that. Yeah. Um, and yes, I mean, like, and I do completely recognize the fact that I just don't really get it. I don't, I, I can't re directly empathize with how he feels about um, enjoying whatever, weird porn, whatever. I don't know if Andrew yeah. enjoys weird porn, but people in general. Yeah. If only men um, watched only gay porn, it would be fine, right? <laughs> <laughs> All the animated um, porn. Yeah, this is all of the kind of funny loopholes that that I think about when I read your book. What about furries? <laughs> what about fairies? Aren't they fun? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah. What about men's pleasure is is a, is a tricky question. I mean, I definitely think that you're coming at this. Uh, that's why the case against sexual revolution is so compelling. Is because I've read um, a thousand cases for why casual sex should be. Uh, completely normalized and everybody should try it and why it's okay. Um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Jana Vrangalova. She's a sex researcher um, who has tried to find out, you know, what characteristics make people um, have positive experiences of casual sex. Um, you know, men have very positive experiences of casual sex and she, she knows she was trying to do this thing about sexual agency uh, in a way to maybe instruct people about whether or not casual sex was uh, was good for them. Anyway, she's she's very high on sociosexuality, so to her it seemed like an like an obvious case to make. For you, uh, it's it's uh, the the, you know, the opposite case uh, makes more sense. And I'd say as well that um, the fact that you 
primarily are hearing from women high in sociosexuality mm-hmm. is not a coincidence. I think it's because women low in sociosexuality don't like to write about their sex lives. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because their sex lives are boring. Like you're not going to get a column in a magazine writing about, you know, your monogamous vanilla sex with your husband, right? Um, and it's also because I think, uh, I mean, I personally never write about my sex life. Like I've managed to, you know, write a book about sex and I've never written about my sex mm-hmm. life and I never intend to because I think it would, because I don't want to and also because I don't want to violate the privacy of my husband. Yeah. Um, so you just tend to therefore hear less from those women. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the highly sociosexual women, like, they have a lot to say and they tend to be quite willing to say it. So it slightly skews. So where on the high street do you buy the sheets that have the hole embroidered in them, Louise? (laughs) 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 We could sell a special branded uh, Major Mother Matriarch. (laughs) Special feminist. Maybe maybe a hijab as well. We could actually sell hijabs. That would be... Um, this is the thing that I've, another thing that I've changed my mind about. I've become, you know, I'm 10 years older than you. I've become much more conservative in the last 10 years. When I was your age, I don't think I would have even, you know, picked up case against sexual revolution. Um, this is a question. I don't, I don't think I've seen you write about this. So I've been on meditation retreat. On meditation retreat, uh, you don't speak for 10 days and you're in a mixed sex environment in the meditation hall, but men and women are totally uh, separated. And there's a quite strict uh, modesty code. You don't have to cover your hair, but you have to cover your shoulders and you have to cover yourself and you can't wear like leggings and things like that. And um, it wasn't until I was on meditation retreat for several days where I realized how important that is and how distracting actual bare skin is. And I see people saying all the time that tween girls should be able to wear basically their underwear to school and that boys should uh control themselves i imagine that you have views on this yeah i mean that's probably another one of those cases of women not really understanding male sexuality um like i i i do not feel i would not find it distracting on a meditation retreat for people not to for men not to follow i mean men generally dress quite modestly but like Whereas I, I am told that men do genuinely find it distracting being able to see women's shoulders and so on. Um, I think single sex education is really good for this reason. I think that actually keeping teenagers, unrelated teenagers, socially separate is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that the modesty thing... I mean, to some extent, what um, immodest clothing is, is defined just relative to what's normal. Because it, like what's what's like slutty clothing in any given time and place yeah. is just slightly sluttier than what's normal or maybe not slightly, you know, but is like you look at what women, what like prostitutes wore in the 19th century and they're still wearing long skirts and so on. So trying to, there's just so much room to, I'm obviously not advocating niqab, right, for all (laughs) sorts of reasons, including the fact that it's really impractical. I mean, largely the fact that it's really impractical. How on earth do you drink, like, you can't drink a coffee, you can't, you know, all of this stuff. I I I also read somewhere that because of the lack of vitamin D, women who wear niqab are more likely to get many cancers is because they they don't get exposed to the sunlight, yeah. And yeah, and yeah, include and particularly so in Britain, because there's less sunlight anyway. Yeah, you've got dark skin. Yeah, um, 
yes. I mean, I don't know. I have. I actually haven't been asked about this that often. The sort of clothing question. Mm. Um, my my vague answer is just like somewhere normal in the middle. Yeah, I you know I think I, mean? I don't think necessarily school uniforms. School uniforms have been very sexualized, so I don't think that they help. <laughs> I do think schools. I think schools should be strict with girls about not, but mostly because girls don't know what they're doing. No. Like if they're walking to and from school with super short skirts what's really hard for girls to understand is that they 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 might well attract positive sexual attention that they want from the high status men they want sexual attention mm-hmm. from but they are also going to attract sexual attention from everyone else yeah. i didn't get and girls are just at, at all yeah and, um yeah uh <laughs> i i grew up in a culture where actually all my dolls were in very slutty clothes and my grandmother bought me very slutty clothes so you know and and it's it's you know i think latin culture it's not quite like Irish gypsies or whatever, you know, where the girls are married at 14, but they're also, you know, when they're 10 and 11 wearing tiny clothes and they have these very intense um, norms against any kind of premarital sex. Um, So kind of back to paternalism, um, you know, you're saying in some sense, women, maybe given the societal information, maybe given the cultural information that we are given right now, are not making the best possible decisions for themselves. Oftentimes women are engaging in prostitution or uh, doing pornography before they're old enough and wise enough uh, to know their, um, to, you know, to necessarily know what's best for them. And and with surrogacy, you would like to outlaw surrogacy. The thing that bothers me most about surrogacy, which is what I wrote this um, piece for The Spectator about this week, is separating mothers and newborns. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other associated problems with surrogacy, which I think are bad, but which are maybe easier to ameliorate. Whereas that's, that's like a essential to the process with the exception maybe of say a sister bearing a child for her sister Mm -hmm. and who is still going to be in the child's life as, as an aunt. So I think that if there's a continued close relationship between surrogate and baby, I think that's okay from my perspective it's difficult because you can still have degrees of sort of coercion and exploitation within families um but i mean even if you i don't think you really can outlaw that anyway because if you're doing turkey based or whatever it's not like it's like it's not like anyone would really be able to intervene um i'm dead against commercialized surrogacy Mm. And I think that actually a lot of altruistic surrogacy is extremely close to commercial surrogacy, even if there aren't very large sums of money being exchanged. Yeah, I've never been a surrogate. As you know, I've I've done egg donation. I did offer surrogacy to somebody who I thought was brilliant and wonderful and I thought should have children, a gay man who I thought was wonderful and should have children, um, who did not take me up on it. Um, I think that what gay men should do... Yeah. Um, and I have friends who've, who've, who've done this or plan to do this, is team up with lesbians. Mm-hmm. Because that's all their very little problems. <laughs> well, I know. And uh, so, which is why I do find it a bit annoying. Like one of, one of my very close friends, one of my very close friends is a gay man. And he intends to do this with his partner. And they have loads of lesbian friends and are generally very like, they have lots of female friends. Yeah. So for them, that seems like an, an easy and, and obvious thing to do. And they agree they agree with the ethical objections to surrogacy. Um, the gay men who respond to this being like, I don't know and like any lesbians. <laughs> I'm kind of like, I think that's your problem, dude. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know. they're, re- they're really on very opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> um, 
so I didn't find your your thoughts about surrogacy in your spectator or or in the three quarters of the episode I listened to with Jennifer Law at all compelling um, because with animals you see cross fostering all the time and they have no problems. There's a, there's a, a guy called um, Steve Sumi who's made a 40 year career or something where all of his rhesus macaques are cross fostered. No ill effects of cross fostering. That's a quite close species. I just don't think that there's any problem. And, and I think almost it, you know, if you look at adoption, right, children who are adopted as newborns by families, um, almost all the problems that adopted children have are genetic from their biological parents rather than uh, from being removed from their mother uh, to a new woman. Uh, you know, it, you'd see some kind of pattern, I think. So I didn't find that at all uh, compelling. Um, and Stuart Ritchie made, I think, very, some very good points. Uh, are you going to write a, a follow-up? Um, you know, defending this position about the welfare of, of babies who are born of surrogates? So it's interesting, Diana, because when you came on my podcast, you remember we spoke about your emotional response when the yeah. obstetrician mm -hmm. took your baby to the other side of the room when you'd just given birth. Yeah. And you could have killed him. Yes, that's right. Like <laughs> that emotion, like... I mean, it's it's obviously not something that you you want to say to people who are infertile, and it's and it's and it's an annoying thing for people to hear if they've not had children. But honestly, that maternal feeling, if you've not felt it, is just overwhelming. And it may be, and 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 also makes sense because our babies are much more vulnerable than other babies of other species. So the fact that we would be much more closely attached w makes sense in that context. Mm. Um. My argument against surrogacy is not just that there are um, sort of there's empirical evidence of it causing stress to newborns and to surrogate mothers, although I think there is empirical evidence of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I was I found Stuart's thread annoying, partly because it was quite aggressively phrased oh. and I, I didn't engage on that basis because I just have a policy of not engaging with people if they're unpleasant on Twitter. Yeah. I am unfailingly polite on Twitter on, on policy. Yeah. Um, is that he was demanding evidence, which, by the way, I did include in the citations to the, the, the because the Spectator is a print magazine, it doesn't include okay. hyperlinks. But I included the hyperlinks for the purposes of the editors, and then they remove them later. Um, he was demanding evidence of something which is intuitive, and I would say that when you are the person defending a hypernovel thing like surrogacy you know gestational surrogacy yeah. has only really been available for what a couple of decades yeah. it's incumbent on you to say that there's no harm done when newborns are separated from the women who've just given birth to them because anyone who's I just I, I my feeling on this is and this comes back to me being a virtue ethicist I think that if we cannot agree as a society that women should love their babies, then we can't agree on anything. Like that's, I think that that is the most fundamental human relationship that exists. And if we can't agree that maternal love is a good thing that should be not just protected, but encouraged, right? If you, if you have a legalized surrogacy system, then the law is saying implicitly that maternal love in some circumstances should be discouraged. And to me, that seems like 
that seems almost dystopian to me in terms of what like what incentives that puts in place and i think that i think that that and and maybe this is a point on which some people would disagree with me mm-hmm. that there are good and normal emotional responses to have to certain things and a, and a good and normal response to giving birth is to love that baby um the first thing and i to... accept that there are some cases where that doesn't happen but what I find really morally repugnant about surrogacy is that it deliberately discourages that from happening mm. and not in the interest of the child, but in the interest of people who are often paying money in order to um, sell the maternal infant relationship for parts. Um, so I'll respond I'll to a few things. The first is that if uh, the child I had given birth to was not mine genetically, I would not have had the response that I did, I don't think. Um you don't think? No, I, don't I mean it's just really hard to know because, like, our dumb monkey brains don't know that. <laughs> I mean, I might have had a, I might have had a periodic, <laughs> right? like a periodic, you know, maybe a couple days of feeling. You know, there is that come down from from oxytocin and that come down from uh, from pregnancy hormones. Um, I think that your idea is that you know surrogacy says maternal love doesn't matter, or that maternal love should be discouraged in this context. Uh, and that if we can't agree that maternal love and the mother-infant bond is good, then what can we agree on? Uh, I I just think that that's just a, a caricature of, 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 of what's going on. I just think that um, people should be allowed to sell services, I think, like surrogacy. And I think that surrogates ideally would be women who have had children before you know, tons of women, if you look at mommy forums, say, I wasn't attached to my baby. I didn't care about my baby for the first two weeks or whatever. Why wouldn't, shouldn't those women be surrogates, right? And those women should not be shamed for the same reason that surrogacy is okay, right? We shouldn't say you're weird for not experiencing an immediate bond to your, to your newborn. And, you know, you say that newborn infants are very, um, they're very altricial and that's why we have to take such good care of them. I mean, infanticide is also the most common form of homicide. In many cultures, women kill six or seven babies before they keep one uh, because they have very uneven uh, resources. I know talking about killing babies is very popular. Everybody's going to love this. Um, but well, in, I mean, it's, a, it's a useful thing to bring up, though, yeah. because, yes, no. So I agree with you. Humans do all sorts of terrible things all the time, right? And there are all sorts of... Um, there are all sorts of ugly emotions which are found in humans and which are potentially adaptive in humans. In some I just don't think not loving you know, a baby that's not yours is not terrible. I just think that's not terrible. And I think that selling that as a service is also not terrible. But um, another thing that I, that I talked about uh, on Twitter is, is quite a, you know, you, you talked about um, egg donation being eugenicist. So there's a service in the UK, it's in the UK and the United States it's called project prevention and they pay women to be on birth control or get sterilized because women who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, um, often their children are given up. Oftentimes um, their children are suffering from alcohol or or, or drug deprivation or fetal alcohol syndrome uh, when they're born. Uh, So if surrogacy is very bad for babies, should we not implement a lot of other policies like paying women to get sterilized who are addicted to drugs? That's also bad for babies. Um. I thought we might save this for the, your most controversial <laughs> opinion, but Diana. Um, 
Uh, I actually, I'm not throwing around the word eugenicist to be gratuitously insulting. No. Like I've read your very good essay on eugenics and and recognise that actually there are all sorts of policies we have in place which are arguably eugenics yeah. and uh, eugenicist, and loads of people agree with them. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think that women who are addicted to drugs should be having babies. I don't. I don't think it's in anyone's interest for them to be doing that. Yeah. Um, coercively sterilising them, which obviously historically has been done. Um, opens serious moral can of worms which I'm squeamish about mm. I don't have a sort of I don't have like a I don't have a very strong position either way except to feel that both outcomes seem seem bad and so we're basically choosing between lesser lesser of evils um to uh, I mean to encourage people I know I does this still go on in America that people will sometimes be given, for instance, shorter prison sentences, if they accept, accept being sterilised. There's been a couple of judges it, who've tried it. and um, I think it did happen until relatively recently. They were not. I mean, as far as I know, one judge, yeah, offered sterilisation. There was a man who was actually in prison for not paying child support. And I think he offered three months leave if the man would get sterilised and the judge was censured. Um, yeah. It's... um. I had this conversation with Michael Bailey on my podcast. I mean, sort of connected and talking about paedophilia and chemical castration. Like, I'm comfortable with the idea of chemically castrating paedophiles. Um, some people would say that using sort of novel medical interventions in that way is is very much not in keeping with Chesterton's fence. Yeah. And so maybe we... We shouldn't go around kind of biologically interfering with people, even if it would have some good outcomes, that there's maybe there's some important principle there that we should be wary of. And I, I take that seriously, but I don't know what the answer is. You, I think you're, when you talk about Chesterton's fence, you're talking about tradition. But I think you're also someone who, differently from me, thinks that your feelings are a good guide to what's right and what's wrong. You know, so when you were talking to Jennifer Lal about surrogacy, um, you all brought up a point that I've seen often brought up in, you know, internal review boards and psychology experiments that it's coercive to pay somebody too much for a service, right? That um, if a surrogate, if surrogacy is allowed, people should be doing it for free. Um, or if egg donation is allowed, people should be doing it for, for you know, in, I, when I donated my eggs in the UK, I was just paid for my time. I was only paid 750 quid to donate my eggs, right? And so in some way that's more moral, uh, but kind of back to the original question, you do think that your emotions are a good guide. So I think that this is sound, it will sound convoluted, but this is my way of answering the question. I don't think that there's ever been a time historically when we've had more power in the hands of mildly autistic nerds <laughs> than right now. And I don't mean that to be insulting because honestly, some of my, like some of my best friends are autistic nurse, but for real, like I have an enormously disproportionate number of particularly autistic women among my friends. I find, I find autistic women like just really appealing. I'm often friends with them. Um, and many of these people are to be found at the top of all sorts of organizations, you know, tech, they're, they're designing the algorithms, which, which govern our lives. They're designing policy, which is implemented by government, etc. They have an enormous number of very useful skills and they're often very good at, uh, having, in, you know, they, they, they can often access insights that other people can't easily access, mm -hmm. but the key 
I mean, sort of definitionally, one of the things about being autistic is you're not necessarily very good at understanding other people's emotions. And I think that one of the one of the prop I, I I honestly think this is an enormous problem, particularly when it comes to government, like government policy. That basically the um, the modal policy wonk in Westminster. This is probably also true in Washington. Is like a young, childless, slightly autistic, for some reason, gay man. There's like an enormous number of gay men in politics. I don't know why. Um, who, for instance, if you ask him about like the maternal bonds, is going to have basically is going to be completely nonsensical to him. Yeah. Like we see this in childcare policy, for instance. The, the 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 view from the Treasury is basically we have like X number of mother widgets, Y number of infant widgets, and if we put them in daycare, then we will boost GDP by by Zed, right? Um, and there's just like no recognition of the fact that most women don't want to actually be separate from their babies for that for that long. Mm. There are obviously exceptions to that, but I think that when I think that it is extremely important when we're making moral decisions which affect an enormous number of people to be very strongly led by what by how most people feel about them. Like I think human emotion <laughs> is basically like the central actor in so much of this like when we're talking about surrogacy for instance you know most women do feel bonded to their babies mm. there may be some women who for whatever reason don't but i think that when we're designing policy we should be thinking about what is what is a good and normal response and it's unfortunately a sort of question that a lot of people in positions of power aren't necessarily very good at answering so, so it's not just my moral intuition, uh, although I, 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 my moral intuitions, for some reason, I don't know why, I do seem to quite closely align with most moral people's moral intuitions. It's weird. As I can, as I, <laughs> I don't, for, for whatever reason, I mean, maybe it's just that I'm like, I don't know, I'm unusually typical on that front, but like, I, I almost always agree with the great British public in polling, for instance. Yeah, one of the, the kind of effective altruism premises is like neglectedness. And something I think I'm hearing you say is my perspective of following emotional intuitions to moral conclusions is actually currently neglected in policy. Yes, except to the extent that um, governments are guided by polling. Yeah. Which sometimes they are. Um, yeah, I mean, I also would say um, children of surrogacy want to exist. They're going to have good lives. I think on average, infertile couples who hire surrogates have means. They're very strongly motivated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the reasons that surrogate babies do well is because their parents tend to be rich. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, it, yeah um, so you're talking about the, the welfare of three people um, versus the welfare of, of one woman, right? The, the parents but and the child. I'm, I mean, I know, I know that's yeah. not how you think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. But yeah, these are, these are really fundamental moral questions. Um, yeah. So last question I'll ask, which is also not easy, but it's, uh, you know, so this kind of paternalism, um, the state can make certain decisions for you. You're not competent to make them uh, for yourself. You know, things like uh, participating in prostitution, participating in pornography, participating in surrogacy, selling your eggs, um, selling your sperm, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, today the garbage men came, I saw them and, you know, garbage men have a huge, like, uh, death rate on the job, not quite as bad as loggers, which is the highest death rate, uh, you know, and I feel a twinge of guilt that I made trash for them to pick up because some of them will die this year, right? Um, not as quite, you know, it, it's not as bad as seeing a prostitute if I was to do such a thing, um, but it, it, it is it is a, a similar twinge. Uh, isn't that a, a slippery slope? 
you know, of paternalism to say some people actually aren't competent to make their own decisions and the state should make decisions for them. You know, do you, this is something that you must grapple with all the time. Yeah, it's really hard and it's not easy to draw a clear line. Um, a response that I get sometimes to um, some of my um, arguments, which I find a bit frustrating, is is the sort of, um, but where do we draw the line? But who are you to decide? And it's like, well, we just, I'm afraid we just have to draw it somewhere. And to some extent, that line might be a bit arbitrary, but it has to exist. You know, we have, a, we have an age of consent. Yes, 16 has its upsides and downsides, but we choose it. You know, sometimes you just have to through some kind of democratic consensus come up with an arbitrary marker because it has to exist um on the question of sorry i forgot the beginning of your question garbage men yeah so so obviously men have there are many mostly male jobs that have huge rates of of death you know should we prohibit those jobs like logging is is the highest one um i think we should i mean we need people to do them though don't we so we should be regulating them as much as possible to improve health and safety in the workplace. But if we need people to do them, then we need people to do them. Um, I don't think we need people to do prostitution. Do we need artificial wombs, Louise? I, again, <laughs> Chesterton's fans, I, the thing that worries me about artificial wombs is um, what on earth is the baby who has never heard his mother's heartbeat going to be like? <laughs> Like, it just seems like such an enormously experimental thing to do. I mean, it may be that eventually we sort of meet in the middle where we have IVF, where we we can have an embryo survive in vitro for longer and longer, and then you can have incubators that can um, play a robot heartbeat, Louise. It's just as good. I, yeah, I mean, maybe we might just sort of end up accidentally meeting in the middle and deciding it's fine. Maybe it is fine. Yeah. But it seems to me that it's just an astonishingly experimental thing to do with astonishingly high risk yeah again and kind of for what well to make people (laughs) make people who live happy lives (laughs) (laughs) Um, i'm gonna stop picking at you now (laughs) but i've had so much fun picking at you thank you very much and we're gonna get to our uh to our extra questions um is there anything that you wanted to say or add before we get to our extra questions one thing i remembered um, in relation to this thing about um, mildly autistic people running the world, is um, it's also highly, highly intelligent people running running the world, right? And this is something I can say within the safety of the Aporia podcast. <laughs> like um, IQ is real. Yeah. Meritocracy means that that we we've had a fairly successful meritocracy in the West for sort of half a century or more, which has meant that people we've we've shuffled society as such that people at the top tend to be highly intelligent tend to not really understand what it's like to not be intelligent and to not interact with people who are not intelligent that's another thing that um that's another very important factor here when we're talking about paternalism it's extremely annoying and i completely recognize that it's extremely annoying to be told if you are highly intelligent have very good impulse control are extremely conscientious all of the good you know all of the things that make you enormous that are enormously advantageous in our modern society to be told you're not allowed to do all these things for your own good because you probably actually don't need social guardrails and probably left to your own devices you would be fine you would be able to negotiate polyamory bdsm everything and you would probably be fine the problem is that so many people are not fine and can't negotiate these complex things um 
because they're not intelligent enough to do so, basically. You can't really say this, you know, because most people obviously are so resistant to the science on intelligence. But I think that's a really, really strong argument for paternalism and for things like, uh, you know, so something like, I don't know, the gambling industry. The gambling industry is basically designed by highly intelligent people to extract money from people who are low in intelligence and low in impulse control. And I think the government should stop people from doing it, should stop highly intelligent people from doing that. <laughs> I think it's enormously exploitative. Yeah, I don't know if I was, uh, it was in your piece, because I read so much about surrogacy, um, about the, the intellectually disabled woman who gave birth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, even somebody, I think, with an average IQ of 100 would have a lot of difficulty figuring out so many of the things that we've talked about today figuring out if they would quote catch feelings for somebody after having sex with them a few yep. times based on evolutionary theory, figuring out how attached yep. they would be to a baby and how bad they would feel for how long and weighing the costs and benefits yep. of that against uh, payment of thinking about the ramifications of having nude images of themselves online for the rest of their lives. Um, all, you know, yep. and, and the, and the consequences of that, these things are so difficult to grapple with and, to impose such choices. I mean, I think, I think life is exploitation. I think life is choices. And I think it's impossible for people to uh, always make the right decision. But I, I just have this yeah, fundamentally, uh, fundamentally libertarian streak. And I, I know people will hurt themselves. I just think it's important for people like you to have a voice such that, you know, people who, who can't make these luxury, who don't have these luxury beliefs can listen to you and think about, you know, what's best for the, for the average person. Yeah. Because I think one of the things that's really destructive about our, um, super clever, slightly autistically, um, no, obviously most like I'm, I'm overstating the degree of autism, but definitely our, our, our intelligent elite is they don't, they, we don't really have a sense of noblesse oblige. Mm -hmm. There isn't a feeling that actually you owe anything to anyone else. If anything, there's a feeling of contempt, you know, so much of the sort of, like flyover country, red wall, whatever, the sort of um, contempt that elites feel for um, Brexit, Trump, et cetera, is, is, is a kind of unspoken, but basically, well, these people are stupid. And, and like, that's kind of true, but they are also your fellow countrymen and they're human beings and they deserve not to be neglect, neglected, exploited. You know, I basically have like a class analysis of intelligence, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, I think that our, our, our society is now increasingly defined by caste based on intelligence. And I think that actually that the, the elite caste exploits everyone else. And I think that's part of the case, you know, the case enormously. for cognitive enhancement is like, oh man, we have to, we have to put the brakes on all kinds of things we want to do because of people who are dumber than us, if I'm good enough to put, put too fine a point on it. And, you know, think of all the fun things that we could do, all the luxury beliefs that we could have if we didn't, if we didn't have to worry about all that. Um, that's, that's great. And, and I think that you've been really honest. Um, I'm pregnant, <laughs> so I need to pee. <laughs> so let's have a couple minutes and then I'll do the, the like ending questions for you. Cool. Mm. Oh, wow. You really are. <laughs> Okay, Louise. So the first is, who is the smartest person that you have ever met? Now, if you want to hear our guests' answers to the bonus questions that we ask, then you need to become a paid supporter. And you can do that over on our Substack page for just $6.99 a month or $69.99 a year. I promise you it's well worth it. 
Supporters also get early access to the podcast and to our special filmed conversations, which go up over on the main channel somewhere over there or down below. The link is, is always down below. And of course, if you liked this, then you will love our online magazine. And you can check that out by clicking the link down below. And if you are so inclined, you can find the links to our Twitter and TikTok. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you in the next one. Really? <laughs> yeah. His ability to extemporize is amazing. His, his IQ is north of, north of 150. Mm. Who's the best critic of your worldview? The best critical reviews of my book, uh, Emil Kierkegaard, he did a good... I thought he did a very good critical review. Have <laughs> you ever seen that? Have you ever seen that meme? I really love it. I have it saved on my phone of like um, someone sleeping tightly in their, a child sleeping tightly in their bed labelled Western civilization, and a soldier like absorbing all of the bullets and and grenades, um, and uh, and the soldier is labelled autism. <laughs> well, uh, this has been super fun, and um, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. Is any? Um, oh yeah, we should we should talk about <laughs> where to find you. Uh, so where can we find your work? And uh, yeah. So the uh, my my uh, first book is the case against sexual revolution, available in all good and bad bookshops. Um, it's actually not really like it's incredibly hard to get a hold of a paper copy because, um, which is a great problem to have, but it just gets continuously sold out because it was um, published by a small academic publisher okay. and they're not very good at like keeping on top of stock it's always available as a kindle and an audiobook um my uh podcast is called maiden mother matriarch it's on uh youtube and all other podcast platforms it's also on substack where we do extended episodes and bonus episodes and there's a chat community okay. etc um including obviously my interview with you diana um, it's doing exceptionally ago. well isn't it it's doing really surprisingly well. Yeah, it's gone from we've only released like eleven episodes, but it's so far. But it's um, yeah, it's it's. I think that um, it seems to be scratching an itch because it's um, it's been really popular. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, and I um, I do bits and pieces of journalism. Yeah, that's spectator. Yeah, yeah um, and uh, and I'm on Twitter at at Louise underscore M underscore Perry. Great, thank you so much, Louise. Thank you.